Hello, and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast. I'm Tony, a contributing editor here at Anifem. You can find me on Twitter at Poet Pedagogue. Um, and with me today are the Black Manga Critic um, and Mo, um, if you would mind introducing yourselves. Hello, hello. Uh, I'm Mo Black. Um, I, so when I do do things, I do usually uh, longer like anime criticisms and analysis. Um, I, oh, I got, I got a domain recently. It's very fun. I'm very proud of it. I got a server. So if you go to moblack.xyz, you'll find everything that I do and all the links and stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm just happy to be here. I admire Anifem quite a lot. When I was starting doing this and like looking for like any type of, any type of source that like sort of makes sense on how they look at anime, especially like how they look at uh, fan service and like other uh, like other hot button topics when anime discourse goes down. Um, I was really happy that Anifem was there, like making sense. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, I am the Black Manga Critic. Um, most people, you know, just call me BMC for short because that's like you know just like a lot to say every time you want to. Uh, uh, and you know, talk to me like my name, or you know, call me by name. So, BMC for short. Um, I have a Twitter that I'm on fairly frequently. Um, I have a YouTube channel that I have not been on for a while, but usually I do like manga reactions. Um, I try to vary, you know, the types of manga that I'm reading um, when it comes to those reactions. On and. Every now and then I, you know, in the past, like I would do like, you know, just have like maybe uh, ramblings. I call them ramblings where I just kind of go into, you know, uh, my ideas on abolition, anime, anti-blackness, um, you know, the state, socialism, anarchy, that kind of stuff. Um, so feel free to check out what's there. I hope at some point that I can come back and... Um, do my YouTube uh, work in a uh, more frequent capacity, but definitely feel free to follow me on Twitter at the manga scholar, um, where I definitely talk about like abolition, anti-blackness, anime, manga. Um, and I think education too, because I, I do teach. So that's really important to me as well. Great. All right. So um, we are super happy to have you both here. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh Abolitionism, which is a political movement that has gained a lot of prominence over the last few years, especially since the death of George Floyd, that um, I personally feel has a huge amount of uh, like poignancy when we're talking about anime and can help us understand anime, and anime can also help us understand it. Um, so to just kind of give us a very basic definition of abolitionism, the abolitionist movement. Um, we're just going to go through a few of the key tenets of abolitionism to begin. Um, the first tenet of abolitionism um, we're, we're going to be talking about is um, that abolitionism is about, at its heart, the full abolition of police and prisons. So that means that there is no more police and prisons. This is not community policing. This is not um, nicer, prettier prisons. This is, there are no prisons, there are no police. That is the, and the reason that we have that demand is because um, abolitionists believe that reducing the power of death-making institutions, as Olson Gilmore puts it, such as police and prisons, and investing money, time, energy into life-making institutions that can uh, such as um, schools, um, such as um, services for people, such as the various things that uh, keep people safe, healthy, happy. Um, and police and prisons um, fundamentally do not do that. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me, um, because I got it. Uh, so I uh, started transforming my politics uh around like late 2019 20 early 2020 um and so like I, I consider myself an abolitionist but like i didn't really like start 
studying it until um, after the death of George Floyd. It really made me like think about like, you know, what it is, what is it that, you know, our system is doing? Um, and when you're talking about like how like relatively simple like abolition is for the abolition of police and prisons, it just reminds me of all the discourse of around like defund the police and how people were like, well, defund the police is actually a, see, it's a very complicated thing. You see, we actually want to increase it a little bit. So the slogan is confused. I was like, it's like no, 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 it's, it's no, exactly what it says. We want, <laughs> we want the thing that it says. We're saying the thing because that's what we want. No, we are not asking for police reform. We are asking for police to be gone. What do you mean by that? Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, do we want to transition into the next one? Yes. So the so the next uh, the next tenant um, that we'll use just for this uh, just for this conversation would be uh, the transformation the transformation or abolition of the state. Um, this one is definitely so. Police abolition, prison abolition are, are long-term projects. Um, abolition of the entire state is probably an even longer-term project. Um, but it's essentially saying that um, if we can deal with, you know, punishment, dangerous behavior, abuse in a way that uh, does not militarize people and does not violate people's rights, um, then we can also like take care of ourselves and do the things that we think we need the state to do. Um, in a way that uh, focuses on like collaboration and like willing participation of communities and not coercion and not um, and not violence and not these things. Um, we sort of recognize that the existence of the state, I mean, the existence of the police and the existence of prisons are there because we need the state to continue to exist, right? Um, and so by recognizing that we can try and make a world in which Eventually, none of these things are uh, are necessary. Yes, and I want to add on to this. is a complicated matter. There's a reason it's ab- transformation or abolition of the state because there's a lot of debate among abolitionists who are some of whom are more socialist and who believe in a you know a, a socialist state, right? Um, mm-hmm. But still, somehow abolishing police and prisons. I'm not quite sure how, but. That's what they believe. And people who are more anarchist and who believe in uh, what Jasper Pular calls a no-state solution, right? right. Um, so so it's, it's not – there's a lot of debate in, in abolitionist circles around this. Um, moving on, the third kind of thing we're going to be talking about, and this might not actually be the order we discuss in the episode, but that's fine, um, is transformative justice and centering survivors to create spaces for actual accountability, and refusing organized abandonment. So many people think that abolitionism is like naive, that it's not about like actually, you know, protecting people. But in reality, it's uh, abolitionist movements have long been spearheaded and organized by and theorized by survivors of extreme violence who realized that the police and prisons were just not working to actually protect them. We're not working to create any space for accountability. We're not working to actually like support them through the aftermath of that violence. So how do we actually um, lean into that that struggle for accountability in a way that creates meaning, meaningful um, support for survivors and does not abandon them in their most dire circumstances? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the work of transformative justice, um, 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 mode of justice that is like different from punitive justice in that it's about transforming the circumstances that produce harm and not about just locking up the person who did it. Although, you know, some amount of punishment is still, you know, a question in that matter. All right. And Danny, you got the last one? Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I just want to say centering survivors is, I think, really important, especially in like conveying uh, the goals of abolition, because uh, if you think about, for example, people who have never had to call the police before and who have never had to interact with it will constantly say, like, without the police, who will you call when you're attacked? Who will you call when this? Who will you call when that? But if you listen to the people who have been attacked, uh, sexually abused, uh, robbed, whatever, they will say, yeah, I, I called the police. They didn't do anything. They thought I did it, which happens a lot. They took down my name and then they left. 
and then nothing ever came of it ever again. So there's a huge difference between people who have never had to interact with these systems, but who have bought the idea that they're necessary in case one day something happens. And the people who have actually been a victim um, of something horrible and who have realized that these systems are there not to help them, but to just uphold um, the state um, and uphold like power. Okay, so that kind of dovetails into uh, the last tenet. And, and I think, and this is, this is not to say that um, this tenet is like the most important tenet or anything like that. Um, it's more to say that dismantling anti-Blackness, imperialism, and settler colonialism, um, in particular, dismantling anti-Blackness is like paramount to any sort of um, work towards abolitionism, any work towards abolition um, of the police, of prisons, of the state. Um, and I think going back to what um, Tony stated um, about, you know, abolitionists having different ideas of what abolition looks like or how to how do we get to abolition or what the world will look like after abolition. Um, none of these things um can to me be seriously discussed without discussing um anti-blackness um in particular right obviously you know imperialism settler colonialism i think most abolitionists are for the most part on the same page with those two things but i think anti-blackness is where we really get to um this kind of these like divides and these um departures from uh where abolition um, sort of starts and where it can take us. If we think about anti-Blackness as sort of foundational to the logics of like the world as it exists, right? We can think about um, uh, economic logics, uh, carceral logics, all of these right gender logics. Um, then we can really, I think, truly begin to think about what ab like what abolition could be what needs to happen um, to get there and what would happen after the fact. Um, and and just really quickly to kind of say some things, right? When we think about um, imperialism, right? Anti-Blackness as foundational to imperialism, um, thinking about chattel slavery, thinking about the ways in which uh, slavery has quite literally, right? Um, and in some ways figuratively built the logics of the, logics of the world that in which we live in, in which we uh, move through. And if we think about um, settler colonialism, um, the ways in which we should we, you know, we obviously have to have conversations about borders, about you know, Israel, Palestine, Israeli-Palestinian um, interactions, in particular, right, Israeli um, violent Israeli interactions um, uh, or uh, acts against Palestinians, um, but also to think about the ways in which anti-blackness functions within those interactions. Um, I was going to say something about Israel as sort of like, you know, a byproduct of imperialism and thus a byproduct of anti-Blackness, but I'm not going to get into that because that's a lot. <laughs> um, so maybe maybe that does come up, but maybe not for this podcast. <laughs> it's, oh, it's absolutely cool. will come up. <laughs> like, uh, I'm going to be talking about, and later on I'll be talking, uh, we can edit this part out, but later on I'll be talking about Jasper Puar and like her idea of the no state solution as in like critiquing kind of like the way of looking at like <laughs> the Israel-Palestine conflict. So, so I, I'm, I'm excited to go there. Um, but yeah, no, we, we will go there. So yeah, thank you all for um, describing these different aspects of it. Um, I, the reason we're talking about this in anime is that there's so many anime lately that in historically that have dealt with questions of incarceration, of revolutionary change, of the, the ways that survivors are treated. Um, to give you an idea, we're going to be talking about things like women called Fujiko Mine, Jojo Stone Ocean, Decadence, Michiko and Hachin, Akadama Drive. There's so many that, that an abolitionist lens really clarifies. So we hope that this episode will expand your thinking and clarify some of these, the questions these shows present and also open up new questions. Um, so that what, when you're watching your next anime, you're, you think to yourself, huh, why is this depicted like that? You know, um, before we begin, I want to ask if we can just, you know, 
briefly talk a bit about how each of us came to abolitionism as a political philosophy, um, since it is such a radical departure from um, the the kind of status quo or mainstream philosophies of uh, American political life. Um, but also, I think, a very logical like re- response to these um, situations we find ourselves in. So, yeah. Um, would anyone do you like to get us started? Uh, I guess I, I'll probably be the shorter since I mentioned it a bit. Like I had, um, like I said, like a pretty big political realignment around uh, 2019, actually when I started writing about uh, anime. Wow, that's longer ago than I want to admit. Anyway, <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> NBD, as they say. But yeah, I I was... I think what what sort of did it for me is like I I consider myself privileged. I um, had a pretty good childhood. Uh, I luckily didn't really have to interact with the police that much. I went to a really good university, but even then, I I I couldn't stop thinking about like how is it that even with all that, like the world in general still feels like it's like you know coming apart just slowly. Um, why are we not addressing things like climate change? Why is it that like every year or so, um, like a police officer can just shoot an unarmed black man and then we just like go on like it's fine? Like how is imperialism still happening? How are how are how is the United States still involved in like six different like wars simultaneously when like nobody wants them, right? And I, I guess for me, if you think through it and you read uh, and you read philosophers and economists that have answers to this, like the the framework that makes more sense uh, is uh, to me an abolitionist framework. Um, and I really started exploring, like I started looking even at like uh, some examples of my own life. Um, of, for example, when I was in university, it was basically common knowledge that like all the black students there would like always have their university cards at all times. Because if you were stopped by a cop, you wanted evidence. Uh, you wanted to give evidence to the cop to treat you like a human being and not like a black person. <laughs> um, or uh, doing, even doing stuff like that I was lucky to do, like study abroad and like finding anti-blackness um, abroad and definitely being treated differently than like the other students that were in the program. Um, it you can't like go through these things. And in my opinion, it would be very difficult to go through these things and not think about like why it is that the world can't be any different. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I'll say there are three very like particular moments, um, that really kind of like catapulted me, um, into, uh, you know, thinking about abolition, like conversing about it, um, you know, reading about it, all of that, um, and trying to implement that in my, like, you know, just like my daily life, like work, things like that. Um, The first instance, I would say, was in 2014. Um, So this is my, this is like my last year of undergrad. I was about to start my PhD program. And I was in this program, um, at Rutgers, um, Rutgers University, where, you know, we, we, it was like all, um, uh, you know, black students, students of color, like, um, you know, other students of color. And, you know, all of our projects were, um, you know, discussing uh, different, like, like, you know, really, really like important topics, gender, um, uh, you know, blackness, things like that. I was studying feminism, but anyways, um, there was a conversation that we had just about like, you know, kind of what it meant to, um, it, it really like what it meant to be like a student of color, what it meant to be black, um, you know, and just kind of like, that was like a really like big moment for me because it, it, it kind of allowed me to like be open in a way that I didn't feel like I could be about that particular topic about blackness, about, you know, moving through this world is, um, um, as a as a black person, um, and I think after that, like moving into my PhD program, so I was there for like two and a half years. But moving into that, um, you know, there were just more instances to 
um, discuss, like discuss anti-blackness, discuss abolition, discuss, you know, all the research that, um, and all the scholars that discuss that. Um, there was a, I was doing a fellowship program where we had mentored undergraduate students. And there was one undergraduate student, student um, in that program. This is at CUNY, by the way, on um, the City University of New York. So I was at the Graduate Center. And um, this one student was doing like organizing work. He was, you know, very heavily like involved in doing like organizing work. I can't remember what work he worked for, but he was doing that. Um, and we had gotten into like a discussion about, um, you know, Obama and um, the election and um, and all of that. So that was around 20, right? So like 2017. And um, that was really like kind of like, my like okay like if i'm gonna be in this i'm gonna be in this because he was just so eloquent about like you know and and knowledgeable about you know the ways in which obama was you know an agent of the state um how uh you know just like very like um representational politics so that was really like my kind of way of like really getting into it and really like looking into it and, and being honest with myself about the ways in which i was kind of doing similar work um and then the third was, of course, George Floyd. So that was kind of like, all right, yeah, I was in it, but now I'm like, now it's like, let's go. You know, like, let's really, really get to work. Let's, like, talk about this daily. Let's, like, do this work daily. Let's really be in conversation and community with people. Um, and I would say that was really, like, kind of, like, those three things, I would say, are, were really um, foundational to, like, my entryway into abolition. And thinking about you know prisons, police, anti-blackness, uh, all together. Yeah, the moment of George Floyd's murder, I think, was the moment when abolitionist thought finally was able to pierce a little bit of the mainstream political discourse. Where we saw, for example, Miriam Kaba come out with that essay in the New York Times that was like, "Yes, I actually want to fully abolish the police." That means no more police, right? You know, and of course they, I'm guessing they probably gussied up the headline to be a little bit more inflammatory, but also she she said that, you know, <laughs> she, she meant what she said and she did not leave any crumbs. For me, right, like I originally was introduced to um, abolitionism in undergrad through, as I'm sure a lot of people are, Angela Davis's work, specifically her book, Our Prisons Obsolete, and I read it in undergrad, you know. As a young 20-year-old, I was like, what is this? What's going on here? Hmm. <laughs> Why aren't you talking about alternatives? You know, um, which is not really the project of that book, it must be said. The, the project of the book is to explain why prisons are death-making institutions that, you know, don't actually serve any meaningful purpose other than harming people and producing capital. Right. And But I was skeptical at the time. And then... I think what really changed it up for me was moving to New York City um, and seeing what I, as a teacher, right, um, I worked, I've worked in predominantly black schools most of the time that I've been a teacher in New York City and just kind of, and also just being in community with um, black residents in New York City and kind of seeing the city through that perspective of um, trying to understand all the ways these institutional forces conspire to, like, m make my job as a teacher impossible in terms of, like, instead of being a teacher, I realized, wait, I'm not be becoming a teacher in these classrooms. I'm becoming a cop. Oh. <laughs> and, um, you know, recognizing that confluence between education and incarceration and, like, how Black children are treated as latent criminals, like, really radicalized me. And as I, as I was, you know, experiencing that, I was also reading Sedia Hartman's work, which really is the foundation for my thinking around this. She wrote this wonderful book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, that's all about queer Black women at the turn of the century trying to live their lives free from enclosure. And she discusses these reformatories, right, like, and we're going to get more into that as we talk about JoJo's. So I'm not going to get super into that right now. But as I was doing all that stuff, I was also watching Madoka Magica. And uh, if you haven't read it yet, I have an article out about Madoka and my path to becoming an abolitionist. No, I said definitely read it. It's like awesome. It's like fantastic. 
I actually had both Mo and Danny read it as I was like <laughs> preparing to publish it. Yeah, so we can we can confirm that it's such an awesome article. And like for me, I saw reflected in Madoka my experience of like how and so anime actually became this really important tool for me to understand what abolitionism really means. Um, because I saw so much of the things that I was thinking said out loud in these anime, and I was like, oh. I really do credit Angela Davis, like, for being that kind of the first um, kind of entry point that so many of us have into abolitionist thought, which brings us to kind of, like, discussing the first tenet of, like, abolitionism that I want to get into, which is full abolition of police and prisons, right? Yeah, do we want to talk a little bit about, like, Angela Davis's intervention and, like, why that's important. And then we're going to get into, like, how that relates to anime. Angela Davis's Our Prison Obsolete was a text that I think is many people's first introduction to abolitionist thought. So it was actually published fairly recently. It was published in 2003. Um, But it was really the culmination of decades of work that Angela Davis had done with her organization, um, uh, Critical resistance to um, investigate all the ways that the growth of prison systems was um, exploiting and harming black communities and like how the prison industrial complex was forming. And it, it's a really important text in abolitionism. So yeah, I wanted to give us an opportunity to talk about like how it influenced us and then we can, or why it's important intervention. And then we'll, go into like how it, it helps clarify some of these anime. What that text really helped me do is to like put into context, like the whole idea of like modern prisons, right? Cause it wasn't always the case that we, we, we think of it natural today that like you do something bad, you go to jail. Right. And like, how else would you do it? And the fact is it wasn't always the case, especially in the United States. Um, that we had like these like massive prisons, right? Where we just like kept anyone who did, who like looked at anyone the wrong way, right? Um, Angela Davis's text really goes through the history of how like incarceration is basically a byproduct of the Confederates losing the Civil War. Um, a lot of old plantations became prisons. Um, and uh, the racial makeup, especially of those prisons, was radically transformed. Uh, when uh, uh, when slavery was abolished, except of course, as we all know, um, as a as a punishment for a crime, right? Looking at that history and realizing that we have basically just inherited the legacy of like racial like chattel slavery under the guise of like keeping people safe, it it, it just makes you realize like if, if there was a time where we didn't need this there can be a time in the future where we don't need it again. And I feel like that like mental block is sort of like the first step. Uh, it, it was, it was a good, it was a good step for, for me to take it's, I think it would be a good first step for a lot of listeners who are maybe still unsure about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I also think um, that one thing uh, Davis's text does really well is not only just um, sort of situate um uh, PSE abolition, um, prison industrial complex abolition, um, historically, but it also, um, and I think you know the the best sort of scholars do that. the The language is really accessible, and there's one instance in the text um, in which Davis sort of talks about uh, people taking prisons for granted, right? And I think that language is so important because. Usually when we're taught about taking certain things for granted, we're talking about good things, things that are beneficial to us, things that are, um, that, you know, improve our daily livelihood. And two things are kind of happening there, right? I think the first thing is that, you know, Davis is kind of signaling that we see prisons as a good thing, as an objectively good thing. And so we, you know, so we're like, oh man, you know, so in the ways that nor, nor I think people um, who, you know, are or, or pro prisons, are like, oh, prisons are great. Like we need prisons. These, these are awesome. Like, oh my God, I can't believe like, you know, 
like sometimes, you know, we, we, we should think more about prisons and more about how prisons are good, right? And, and taking prisons for granted. And then on the other, on the flip side, number two is that um, we, right, like prisons are just like, at least in, in my sense, like objectively, like awful death dealing institutions. Um, but even with that, like we still view prisons, maybe even so like subconsciously, right? On a, on a particular, like maybe psychoanalytic, if we think about it psychoanalytically, we think about it as like, something that has to exist, something that is um, uh, objectively like necessary part of our daily livelihood. And Davis is sort of saying like, well, no, like this, this shouldn't be here. Like this should not be something um, that we take for granted. We have to like eliminate it, right? We have to abolish it, hence abolition, right? And prison abolition. Um, yeah, so I think the language like is, is also really um, useful as like someone who's like just kind of jumping into um, abolition and th- this idea of abolitionism and um, PIC abolition, prison industrial complex abolition. Yeah, yeah, and I think that it clarifies you know when we're looking at like you talk about like the psychoanalytic aspect of it, right? We can also look at it as an aspect of um, the collective imagination or the collective. Co- unconscious right how anime shows us kind of the collective unconscious of um of well i guess japan but but, you know but that also informs our collective unconscious because lord knows so many of us grow up watching anime and that informs our idea of what um what constitutes safety what constitutes um you know uh you know how we uh, we treat cops right um, which I think brings us to the topic of like a lot of anime is just kind of propaganda. It's in like not even really subtle about it, but um, yeah. What example do we want to talk about first? Maybe we could switch it up and start with Death Note because I, I think Death Note Oof, is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> everyone knows Death Note. And I think everyone sort of vaguely understands that maybe in some abstract way, um, light is supposed to be not correct. However, watching Death Note, despite the fact that, okay, to be clear, I, I know I can be a little bit of like a like a killjoy, especially on Twitter. Uh, I, I guess not recently because I haven't been tweeting a lot about anime, but I can be I can be a bit of a killjoy when I when I look at an anime and I'm like, yeah, this is kind of, it's propaganda, it's like racism, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I want to be clear that if you watch Death Note from beginning to end, it is very stupid and it's very fun. Okay. <laughs> Those things. Yes, are like I think we can all agree with that. Yes, I. Uh, it is very. It's funny because it's the stupidest show, but it also simultaneously makes you think to yourself, "I am very smart. I understand <laughs> yeah. that weird plot convoluted thing that just happened. I must be so smart. I'm going to go watch Rick and Morty now." Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um. But if you actually like sit and like think about like the assumptions that are made, right? Like there's this one line that I that I still remember, even though it's been a while since I watched it, where um the cops mention how like um after Kira has started killing criminals, like uh the world is slowly becoming like a better place. Right. Like criminals are committing less crimes, less mm. people are getting hurt. Nobody actually cares about the people that are like dying in the prisons, right? They're just kind of like there's sort of like a tacit agreement that like even though Kira is doing what everyone wants to do and even though the world is making a better is being made a better place it's still bad because i guess just killing people is bad <laughs> <laughs> that's unfortunately like it's just like not good enough right because first of all just like killing every criminal does not solve crime because that's not why crime happens. Crime doesn't happen because we aren't punishing people enough, right? Crime happens for a number of reasons. There's like socioeconomic reasons, income inequality, um, the fact that our society like creates abusers that don't get held accountable until it's too late, right? Like all of these like underlying things need to be addressed if you actually want a world with less violence in it, right? Just like treating people who become violent as like aberrations that just need to be killed is like i mean we already do that right well like what more evidence do you need we 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 already do that and there's still crime like the, like the world that death note is imagining 
we live in it and it fucking sucks right so yeah it's just those like hidden those like core assumptions that you need to think about when you watch a show um that i mean it'll make it more interesting it, ma- it makes it more interesting for me yeah i agree i think and i think like the this sort of like structure right like the structure of death note kind of sort of like pushes um the viewer and i think i think like a lot of anime in general but i think it's important to kind of think about it with death note with death note because death note is sort of like okay we have you know this protagonist who um we are supposed to root for not supposed to root for this uh right because like this is the main character this is a character who we are supposed to follow throughout the show and if we you know at any level enjoy the show then we have to kind of almost like cheer for this the survival of this like kind of morally like obscene uh character right in light mm-hmm. um and l on the on, on, but on the flip side right we have l who is right in um a story construction sense an, an antagonist right he is like he is he impedes right um light's progress right he's supposed to like work to impede light's progress and right light is a cop <laughs> Right, like for right. all intents and pers- purposes, like he's a cop. Mm-hmm. So we are supposed to, you know, like uh, like uh, on one hand, we are supposed to be like, okay, like we're supposed to like root against light because we want the story to continue because maybe we enjoy the story. But on the other hand, light, it, like sorry, L is a right symbol of this kind of like justice, and we're supposed to um, root for him because he is justice and because he is a cop and because he's kind of taking things into his own hands in the ways that like cops do right. Um, often. Um, so it's, it's, I think the show in some ways, the show is really useful and kind of seeing how, um, even just with like the construction of the story, we see like copaganda, right. As sort of like, well, well, you know, we're supposed to root for, we're supposed to root for L because he's, you know, quote unquote justice, and because he's the. You mean you're, we're supposed to root for light? Or oh yeah, L? yeah well, I mean it, it's even it's now. Like, I'm just thinking it's, it's complicated, right? right? I think we're mm-hmm. supposed to root for light in the sense of um, the story construction and the way that like he is a protagonist, and we're supposed to root for him because we want the story to continue. But on the other hand, we're supposed to root for L because L is justice and oh, L okay, is a cop and copaganda, right? So there's this kind of like interesting thing go. that kind of like occurs. Where at at once L is an antagonist, right? But in reality, like we're rooting for the antagonist. We're rooting for like the cop, right? Or the the cop that takes things into his own hands. So it it it's it's interesting in a certain way. I mean, like I guess for me, the way I'm thinking, I'm thinking through it now. But that's kind of how I sort of see things, and it's kind of how Death Note works, and how it sort of affects our views on um, cops, on vigilant, on like you know vigilante vigilantism um in, in the sense of like you know like alt-right and conservatives and things like that and cops i i also think it's interesting because it's like whose voice is left in and whose voice is left out like mm. right the we never get the perspective of like you gotta imagine the people who are incarcerated when this is happening probably <laughs> they're not having a fun time like right. they're, they're, they're just sitting there watching their cellmate like get murdered by this rando and being like, well, that's going to be me next, <laughs> which is interesting. I think we're going to get to, uh, because I think it's, there's also a parallel, I think between, if I can transition a little bit, I think there's a parallel between light and Makima from Chainsaw Man, mm. right? Makima, right? There's this one very important episode where the first moment that we really get an indication that Makima is truly evil Mm-hmm. And I'm sure our listeners are very familiar with Chainsaw Man. I hope if you are to go watch it, it's good or read it. The manga is better than the anime, in my opinion. The first real indication that we get that Makima is not a good person. She takes a bunch of prisoners who I don't remember if they're on death row or have life sentences. And she like just straight up kills them as sacrifices so that she can kill her enemies, essentially. Right. And... So the first time that we see her, like, as evil is when we were seeing her act as an instrument of state violence, right? So from the beginning in Chainsaw Man, we are encouraged to see the person who will, I don't think this is a spoiler, become the antagonist of the show. 
aligned with state violence and that being the thing that makes them terrifying. Mm-hmm. And it's it's similarly extrajudicial as light, but you know, because she's not technically cop, she's part of public safety, but she's still an agent of the state, right? Mm. Right. Um, so it, it's very interesting to kind of think about how I think Chainsaw Man takes a character who is in some ways really similar to light and makes them like the villain of the show. But you know, a, a core distinction between uh, Chainsaw Man and Death Note is that although I, I would definitely agree that like light and Makima are in a lot of ways, very similar. Chainsaw Man tends to, at least in part one, part two is very fun, but also very weird. And I'm not sure what to make of it yet. Um, but part one, Chainsaw Man tends to align its villains like with the state. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, in Death Note, a light in this case is a, he's a protagonist, but he's a villain. Um, he's aligned against the state. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think Chainsaw Man, I, I, um, when I wrote about it, um, I argued that like Chainsaw Man has like a really good understanding of like of domination and hierarchy, and a really good understanding of like a lot of the problems with like investing so much, uh, pa- uh, investing so much like power in a state. So yeah, Chainsaw Man is really interesting because it is clearly aligned. It has this deep understanding of state violence, and I think it's pushing us, pushing the audience to critique state violence and critique the culture of um, incarcerated people as disposable and as the monopoly of the, the state to enact violence as being justified. Like there's even one episode where Makima just straight up says like, I don't think you understand that when you do violence, it is wrong because you are not with the state. But when I do violence, it is right because it is the state enacting this mm-hmm. violence. I'm allowed to w- do whatever I want. So, um, Another really interesting counter-narrative of um, police in anime is Akudama Drive. Mo, you have a lot of thoughts about Akudama Drive. Oh, yeah. Um, First of all, Akudama Drive, just in general in that season, it was like such a sleeper pick. Uh, There's a... uh, If by any chance, like, Sophia is listening to this, he will will get a good laugh out of this, but... um, it it's it's this like incredibly over the top very bright very um very like unique looking anime that feels silly at first when you watch the first episode it's about um essentially in the post-apocalyptic cyberpunk uh dystopia of uh japan um where i want to get it right it's the kanto regions and the kansai regions right that sort of have this conflict um, yes. Right. Uh, and so uh, Kansai is basically a vassal state of Kanto. Um, and um, it's after a war that looks a lot like World War II and the subsequent bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, uh, Kanto basically imposes like this police state where the, pol- um, where the police have the power to designate anyone they want as an Akudama. Um, and they uh impose all kinds of ridiculous punishments um and the story is basically about these people who who yes have committed pretty violent crimes i I think that's one of the things i like about akadama so much is that like it doesn't shy away from the fact that like the protagonists that you're following are violent people and they have done bad things Um, but the show says regardless of that fact it's still wrong for the state to treat criminals this way and I think that's really, really hard because it's very easy to find like someone who was like wrongly convicted or who had a um, a conviction that was like widely disproportionate to what they did and say, look at this innocent person that we've heard. It's a lot harder to say, like, even if the people are kind of garbage in this way, what does it say um, about um, the system that still treats them um, as badly as they do? Right. Um, so. Yeah, anyway, it, it ends, like, there's, like, a riot, and, like, the, the police tower falls, and it's, like, so, it's so amazing. <laughs> and, and incredibly funny. I, I would, uh, I would highly recommend, if you're, if you're looking for, I, w- I would recommend watching it alongside, like, thinking about abolition. Um, because I think if abolition is on your mind, like, the show will, it will really, like, hit. Yeah, I, I would say, I think, I think one thing also is, like, um, 
yeah, it is fantastic. And also the um, when we're thinking about sort of like shows that um, either act as counter narratives or propaganda, right? If we think about you know the thing with Death Note, Death Note, and what I was talking about earlier, I think the thing that makes Death Death Note kind of like infuriating is that um, I think people have a really difficult time uh, seeing Death Note as like explicitly like propaganda. Right. And 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 the ways in which the story is constructed kind of like makes it difficult in terms of like the ways in which Ellen Light are um, juxtaposed, the ways in which, uh, you know, the characters make particular decisions and there are um, other characters that are, you know, um, morally this or morally that or whatever. But with Akazama Drive, it's like you're you're, you're rooting for these people. <laughs> right. It's like there's no. Like I would be hard pressed to find someone who's like not rooting for the criminals, right? Like who is watching Akadama Drive and is like, yeah, get them. Like I, you know what I mean? Like you know. So I think Akadama that's something Drive that... has like a very clear cut sense of like right and wrong. Um, yeah, and I appreciate that so much in a, in an anime. <laughs> I think uh, the hot take of the day is that morally gray stories are super overrated. Um, I think it's very easy to be morally gray because all situations are complicated and all situations have nuance. Mm. Um, it is a lot difficult. It is a lot more difficult to look through that nuance and still say, this is what I believe in. Like, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. Right. Yeah. And I think that, like, to build on that, there is this really strong undercurrent in a lot of cyberpunk narratives, right? That I think Akadama Drive resists. And a lot of narratives in general of this kind of postmodernist nihilism that's like, oh, well, you know, the world is getting so complex, it is impossible to, like, you know, discern what is right and what is <laughs> meaningfully, you know, uh, how to actually meaningfully, you know, be a morally good person. So, you know, and it's this very edgelord tendency, right? We see, right. In, you know, whether it's Rick and Morty or whether it's, like, a lot of different cyberpunk anime, especially things like, uh, I don't know, techno lies and serial experiments lane and just long story tradition of nihilism right but even in the thing about these dire circumstances right the thing that an abolitionist lens clarifies so much about these dire circumstances is that they exist for a reason not because oh the world is terrible because it's terrible no the world is terrible because we have it has to be terrible for certain people for those people to continue to be exploited mm-hmm. and for their labor to continue to be used and for them to be kept in place in enclosure right as Sadia Hartman puts it mm-hmm. and what Akadama Drive really says is like no we have to refuse that right we have to right. it you know this circumstance must be destroyed right and it is un I it is unapologetic about that. And it's hard for me to see Akadama Drive as being anything like its message as being anything other than an anarchist message. Just, you know, even if the state is stable, it is stable because it is insanely violent and must be brought down. Right. Um, and, and kind of thinking about like, so, so there are a couple of things that um, this conversation is really um, sparking for me. And just say, I, I really love this conversation that we're having. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I know we're talking about like, you know, it's like very serious, like, and 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 I'm saying that, but also like, I'm very happy to be talking about this with y'all because it's like, <sighs> you know, um, but the the first thing um that I'm thinking about is like, um, this character Swindler as someone who n- distinctly not criminal, right, within um the sort of ways in which I guess in our reality we think of like criminal right that 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 term um but as the show goes on really embraces that and yeah the show see like presenting that as like a positive thing right this like, idea of like um fugitivity of like not not criminality in the ways that becomes a bit like the ways in which fighting against uh the state fighting against the police right um as these ap- these state mm-hmm. apparatuses and one thing it kind of made me think about is like um, there's a scholar, Fred Moten, um, yes. who write, writes about this idea of like called the undercommons and fugitive study. And Moten is talking about, um, you know, working against the uh, 
oppressive violence or like um right um of of the university and 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 sort of showing that like there is a way to um work against that in fugitive in, in fugitive study that's kind of like the terminology that he uses right and i think like academic drive kind of makes me sort of like think about that that like yeah like there's this like massive you know there's a state and there's a police and there's state violence and there's like this institution and like you know almost like right to be a fugitive is at least one step in the right direction right when we're thinking about abolition when we're thinking about the abolition of 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 the state or the abolition of um the police or these like uh oppressive state apparatuses yeah I just wanted to clarify, um, so like Swindler, uh, her whole deal is she's basically like paying for street food, um, and uh, she basically accidentally like doesn't pay, it like costs like five yen, um, and because of that, even though it was a misunderstanding and like the the vendor didn't care, like the the state labels her um, as a criminal, right? Mm. And I think what I love about the show. Um, and it speaks to what you were saying is that because she was labeled as a criminal, she had to do criminal things, right? Just to like survive, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. She had to yes. to build on her like criminal record, right? Where if we didn't have a state basically ostracizing people to enforce like a rigid system, then like she probably would not not have done any of the other things that she did. Right. And I think that that, like, we, uh, I often talk about with my students when I'm trying to explain to them, like, this idea of transformative justice and, like, why policing is ineffective as a response to harm. Prisons are criminogenic, right? They create crime both within them and without them because they create a right. circumstance in which a child does not have a father because the father is in prison. So then what does that child have to do to survive? You know, Mm. it creates a circumstance in which, you know, there is a person who in the prison, you know, maybe they're a trans woman, maybe they're like, you know, one of the less, you know, you know, able to defend themselves prisoners who is going to be raped. You know, there are so many different ways in which prisons and police actually create more violence, both in themselves being violent, right, in state violence, and also in like inflaming all of the different root causes of um of violence you know i think akadama drive really clearly demonstrates that what i love about akadama drive is that despite how like silly and over the top it is it has like a really good understanding of like why criminality exists Mm. um in a system like ours right and i think to contrast that again to uh, a show like my hero academia very classic and well-known and well-watched anime um my hero academia it's all about like heroes and villains and it follows uh the story of like these high schoolers who go to like the best superhero academy uh in the country and they want to become professional superheroes right um and that show is essentially i'm trying to summarize everything i wrote about it but the tldr is that it has no idea why criminals exist it sort of <laughs> thinks that they exist because because some people are perverts who find it fun to like hurt people and like <laughs> that's just like what it is um and so it, it sort of posits that you need like symbols like uh all might which is like the the superman allegory of the of the world to stand there as a symbol to remind criminals that if they ever step out of line and do what's in their nature they will be punished right um and the big central conflict of the show is that like all might is basically no longer able to do that duty and because of that the criminals come out of the word work and they start acting in their nature which is to just hurt people for no reason and if you contrast it's just it's just like such a shallow i think analysis of why things happen and it's it's shallow in such a way that enables right like this is like the the type of philosophy that like justifies like why we have police and prisons in the first place right um anyone who any any like blue lives matter thin blue line person will will think the exact same thing right that some people are just bad some people are just criminals um, and they they pour money into the very system that 
into the very systems that create those criminals and create those conditions that make the problem worse, right? One thing, yeah, like the the ways in which like the the heroes, right? Like if, if, if you know, if we think about abolition um, in relation to my hero, we can see right the heroes as like you know what like they're they're cops, like they're also cops. But I think one thing that my hero sort of tries to do very like flims in a very flimsy sort of way. And I think so. So and other um, shows. I, I'm just trying to think of like maybe other shows that do that too. But like, it sort of says, well, well, the heroes aren't cops because we have cops in in the show. Like, look, the cops are over there. Like, they're cops. Like, you know, talk about them. Talk about those cops. Like, but I think one thing that I think these shows are useful for, and it's, which right is not to say that like the shows are good or anything like that, but it's to say that like these texts are useful to sort of showcase how um, there's a way in which we view like the agent, right? The agent of the state in terms of like the police or the right. cop or as, 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 Oh, this person has to have a badge and they have to have a serial number and they have to have, you know, a pension. Um, and there has to be like a union. Def- and like, this is how we like to find like um, someone who is the police. Right. But, that's not right. Like it's it's more than that. And we're I talking think, about like the role, right? Yeah, right. The societal role. Like even like in My Hero Academia, all the heroes are like they're they're technically like employees of like private companies, right? Which is definitely worse. <laughs> That's definitely worse. But like, yeah, they're like not literally cops in the legal definition, but they're cops in that they do the things that cops do. And you are supposed to look at them as if you would look at a police officer. Right. And I often think about like in any situation, right? I often think that the definition of a cop in my book in a state like is the person who has the monopoly on, on violence, right? The person who is allowed mm. to be violent without ever being held accountable to, to it, you know, um, and allowed to incarcerate and arrest, right? If you have that power, if you have the power to harm and there's no and there's no accountability and no like you know and and it is viewed as morally justified then bingo you are probably a cop um <laughs> like in and i think like makima like pretty clearly lays that out when she says like in chainsaw man she says like yeah you you don't understand your violence is bad i'm with the state my violence is good and that's how you know makima is a cop Right. Mm. Um, and, and it's, it, it is interesting because Chainsaw Man very clearly portrays Makima, right. And as the devils are not even necessarily the enemy in Chainsaw Man, that becomes more clarified in Chainsaw Man when Makima lays out like what the role for example of the gun devil is towards the end of chainsaw man one and um spoiler alert for chainsaw man um if you haven't read the end of part one i'm going to spoil it a bit we'll put it in the podcast notes when the ends of the spoilers are yeah so you've been warned um but it's really interesting that the gun devil is revealed to actually already not be like not be in existence as itself it's it's become kind of this like almost like atomic weapon uh ma- weapon of mass destruction like weapon for e- the state to to use for violence and the goal for, of the state is not to get rid of the gun devil but to repurpose it for more state violence right the goal has right. no interest mm. in the safety of its citizenry it only has interest in its own power right and maintaining its own power um, because if it actually believes in, you know, keeping people safe, it would destroy that thing. That thing's bad. <laughs> it's it's <super laughs> you know? dangerous. It kills so many people. Yeah. Just a countless number. I think that, like, Chainsaw Man has this very deep understanding of how police and prisons and state violence operates um, to maintain the, the kind of... Um, the stability of the state rather and of capitalism rather than to actually keep people safe in any meaningful way. Um, with that, I think that we're going to uh, um, wrap up our uh, the part one of the discussion. You know, we've introduced you to 
the basic ideas of abolitionism. We've talked about how we came to it. We've, you know, gone into the main big grounding demand of abolitionism. It's great for part one. Now, for in and in part two, we hope you come back for part two, where we're going to go much more in depth about some of the more complex aspects and some of the more debated aspects of abolitionism, such as um, centering survivors, um, talking about abolition and, re- and revolutionary transformation of the state, and um, dismantling anti-blackness. Um, and we'll be talking about anime like Women Called Fujiko Mine, Jojo Stone Ocean, Decadence, Michiko and Hajin. So we really hope that you um, come back for that um, in a couple weeks. And with that, uh, we hope you join us for part two. Bye, everybody. Bye.